Keystone, good morning. Happy to be with you. Um, every time that I get up here to preach, I consider it to be a, a privilege, and so I'm excited to join in the series that we're currently in, in the book of Ephesians. And so if you have your Bibles with us, you can turn uh, to chapter 3, which is where we'll be. But I am fascinated by the letter to the Ephesians and really the church of the Ephesians as a whole. In fact, when I first met with Pastor Kyle, when he became preaching pastor, and we were discussing what sorts of sermon series we would have in our future, Ephesians was on the top of the list for me. I don't know that we know as much about any other New Testament church as we know about the church in Ephesus. In fact, you can go back into the book of Acts, chapters 18 through uh, 20, to see the amazing things that God did in the church of Ephesians. You can read about how the, the gospel's lights first started to shine in the church, and then if you turn to the end of your Bible in Revelation chapter 2, you can see Jesus' rebuke to that first church and his threat to turn off the lights, to close down the lampstand of the church. Not only that, but you can read the book of Timothy. Because as Paul is writing to Timothy, he's writing to an elder at the church in Ephesus. You can also read anything with John in the title of the book. Because John, too, like Timothy, was serving as an elder in Ephesus, likely with Mary, Jesus' mom. And so you can read the Gospel of John to get a little bit of flavor of what might have been going on in John's mind as he's ministering among the church in Ephesus. In 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Also, one of my favorite Bible verses comes out of a relationship that Paul would have had with the church. You can read about it in Ephesians chapter 20. He says this, Now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish the race and complete the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I told this story before from the platform, but it bears repeating that in 2013, before we put carpet down in the auditorium, we invited the people of Keystone Church to, in some ways, take a nod from last week's passage to write words on the concrete and then literally stand on the word of God. And so when, when we did that, I knew, Lord willing, that I would spend a lot of time uh, in the future speaking from this platform and looking down in this little section right in here. I wrote uh, Ephesians chapter 20, verse 24. I love how the NIV renders it. It says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I want that passage to be true of my life. In fact, if there are any kids in the auditorium, ones with really good memories, I would love if that was a verse that was included at my funeral. So long as it remains true. I know that it was true for Paul. Paul did make his way down to Jerusalem, and there he was arrested and then he did face many more afflictions before he ended up penning the words of the letter to the Ephesians. In fact, five years has elapsed and he's currently writing from a Roman prison. 
And Ephesians or Acts 20, 24 is also true for countless believers throughout the world and throughout time who have faced persecution, affliction, imprisonment, and death all to the end of being able to testify to the gospel of God's grace. You can read about some of the accounts if you go to voiceofthemartyrspersecution.org. You can read about a story about Drithi on November 2nd, 2022 in India. Drithi, not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but Drithi was worshiping with about 25 other believers when the service was interrupted by a group demanding that the congregation return to Hinduism. Many of the believers were beaten, including Drithi and her father. Because of this event, 14 of the families returned to Hinduism, leaving Drithi and her father as the sole believers. She's quoted it saying this, in life or death, we will follow the Lord. And so you can pray for Drithi. That her father and her will remain strong in the Lord. That God would strengthen them as the only believers in their town. Opendoors.org uh, cites that 5,621 Christians were murdered last year. It's about 15 people a day who, for the sake of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, end up sacrificing their own lives. I want to know, what is it that Paul knows and that these martyrs and persecuted members know that allow them to say things like, I consider the very best that this world has to offer to be as rubbish compared to the sake of knowing Jesus my Lord. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. Or as the missionary to Africa, David Livingstone, is quoted as saying, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically... No sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, or the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and may cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these things are nothing when compared with the glory that shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. I want to know, what do these men and women presume to be true about God and the gospel of God's grace that they are testifying to? In our passage this morning, Paul is going to take a detour from the flow of his letter to open up a window for us to be able to see what it is that he sees. And so we'll read it together, starting, I'm going to pick up a little bit of what Joel preached last week in chapter 2, uh, and then we'll read through a, a little bit of the prayer that begins afterwards. Uh, and before we do that, I want to pray for us. So would you pray with me? Well, Father God, we have sung songs to, to worship you. 
You are our God, the creator, the sustainer, the one who made all things. And Lord, you've given us eyes to see beauty unimaginable. And you've given us ears to hear heavenly melodies. And yet sin has blinded us. Wounds and afflictions have our ears ringing. Our senses are dulled by both pain and prosperity and keep us from seeing and hearing. And so for this morning, Lord, I pray that you would grant us the grace of eyes to see your beauty and ears to hear the glories of your word. Lord, we need your spirit, and so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick up in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 19 and read through 3.16. Paul, finishing his thought from last week, says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, 
I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul's pastoral heart is pounding in his chest as he takes this little detour. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul has soared on the glories of the grace of God available to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 showcased a cornucopia of blessings that believers obtain by faith through grace, that we are redeemed, forgiven, lavished with grace, united, chosen, blessed, holy and blameless, predestined, adopted. He just goes on and on. We are saved and sealed. And so for that reason, Paul prays at the end of chapter one that we'd actually be able to comprehend it and believe it, to take it into ourselves. That we'd actually have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to such a degree that we see just how hopeful and how rich and how powerful we are in Christ. And in chapter two from last week and the week prior, Paul went on to describe in greater detail what it is that God's grace actually accomplished for us. Mainly, that this grace given to us by God gives us a new life and reconciles our relationship both with God and with one another, creating what is called now the church, this new people that's neither Jewish nor Gentile. This church is like, in some ways, a new kingdom with citizens. It's like a new family with family members. It's like a holy temple with stones that are being knit together, built together, shaped and formed to, to be the dwelling place that God would dwell among this new people. And Paul begins in chapter three, like he's going to pray, like he did in chapter one, that we'd be able to comprehend all of that and receive it and live lives out of it. But he pauses He's going to get to that prayer in chapter 14 or chapter 3, verse 14. And he's going to pray that we would have strength to allow Christ to dwell in our hearts and then to grasp the vast dimensions of his love and then be able to both enjoy and display what it looks like to dwell with God. But he pauses and he goes on this little detour because he wants us to address the topic of his suffering. It's like there's an elephant in the room. And Paul needs to talk about the fact that he is a prisoner. And he doesn't want to be discredited because he's in prison, as if he had done something wrong. And he doesn't want to be grieved or pitied by the church as if his life is now ruined. And maybe more importantly, he doesn't want the church to be discouraged Because if or when they face the same fate, he doesn't want them to lose heart. And so Paul gives us the big idea for this morning in verse 13, which I believe is the key to understanding what he has to say in verses 2 through 12. He says, so I I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And it's out of that verse that I get our big idea for this morning, that the glory of the church is worth suffering for. 
Paul wants to pound it into the church in Ephesians, in Ephesus, that the idea that the glory of the church is worth suffering for. Paul says, yes, I'm a prisoner. No, this is not what I would have hoped for my life. But before I pray for you and before you lose heart, there are a few things that you need to know. Because I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that lies before us. This is a light and momentary affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Dear church, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you because the glory of the church is worth suffering for. That's his conclusion. I want to spend our time this morning looking at what is the basis for that conclusion. So I'm going to highlight two things that Paul sees, and I'm going to talk about and have us meditate on two implications for what that may mean for us living in 2023. My first statement that Paul sees, Paul sees himself as a beneficiary of amazing blessing. Paul sees himself as a beneficiary of amazing blessing. He sees both his salvation and his call to ministry as undeserved gifts of God's grace. In salvation, Paul believes all the things that he has proclaimed in chapters 1 and 2, all of the blessings are actually true for him. The eyes of his own hearts have been enlightened to be able to see the hope, the riches, the power that is his. Yes, he is in prison but he believes that he is currently seated in the heavenly realms and blessed. He notes in verse 8 that he considers himself to be literally less than the least of the saints, and yet he recognizes that in Christ he is holy and blameless, adopted into God's family as an heir. He's redeemed. He's forgiven. He was dead, but now he is alive. He's like the old hair club for men commercials. Paul wasn't just a preacher of grace. He was a client too. Paul recognized that the riches of grace are unimaginable. The riches that are his in Christ are unimaginable. Verse 6 says, Paul says that if we think that we know what awaits us in heaven and are somehow bored by that vision of a new heavens and new earth, Paul says we need to keep searching because there is more gold to be found. He says if you think that you've calculated what our inheritance is in heaven and yet are so completely fixated on saving for the next home improvement here or for our retirement here, he says you guys need to keep counting. It's unsearchable. It's immeasurable. It's incalculable. It's unspeakable. Now, the words that you might be able to come up with, unfathomable, inexhaustible, whatever it is, it dwarfs our concept of whatever it is that you think means rich. And so Paul doesn't want our pity. He, he is blessed. He's in prison, but he's blessed. He, and he's blessed because he knows that Jesus is right there with him. He is boldness and access with confidence to Jesus wherever it is that he finds himself, on the hillside or in the prison. Paul is not 
pity in himself, thinking that he's ruined his life. There's a refrain in both his salvation and the, the stewardship or the responsibility or even in his prison that everything that he's experiencing is a gift from God, an undeserved gift of God's grace. And Paul wants us to get our heads out of the sand and see the portfolio of riches that are ours in Christ. Because it may be easy for us to get bent out of shape by little things if we end up losing a bigger perspective and forget how rich we are in Christ. Small slights and minor inconveniences have the power to sacrifice our joy, let alone the bigger tragedies and calamities of life. But if, if, you, if you had a hundred thousand gajillion dollars in your bank account and you lost your wallet even if you were carrying 50k in cash would you really call yourself a victim i think you'd be a fool if you lost a dollar to get bent out of shape thinking that somehow the world has collapsed on you paul wants us to grasp like him, the magnitude of the blessings that are before him as a child of God so that even things like imprisonment or death may feel like a small thing compared to what is ours in Christ. Second thing that Paul sees, he sees himself as a messenger of a cosmic mystery. Paul sees himself as a messenger as a co of a cosmic mystery. That word mystery is used four times just in this small little section to describe a message that he's received by God and is now called to reveal to the world. And I think, why call it a mystery? If you look, verse 3 or 5 or 9, they all explain a certain aspect that God's eternal plan for redemption and restoration had not been clearly revealed by God yet or fully received yet by his people. Even Jesus' own disciples were a bit fuzzy on the details of the mystery of God's plan for salvation. Peter's probably the best example of this. He knew enough about his Bible to know that there was a coming Messiah and he would redeem the world, restore it. And so in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, so who do you say that I am? Peter says with confidence, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him and says, well done, Peter, and commends him for his answer. Because Peter knew, he, and he saw that Jesus was the coming Messiah. But just a few verses later, when Jesus starts to talk about his coming afflictions and persecution and death and then resurrection, Peter says, oh, no, no, Jesus, not you. Our Messiah does not suffer and die and to that, Jesus ends up rebuking Peter. How is it that he was so right and so wrong? That's because the mystery wasn't fully revealed yet. He hadn't seen it most clearly. And so whether it's Peter or John the baptizer, are you the one or should we wait for another? The disciples huddled up in the upper room on Easter morning, not really fully expecting the resurrection that has happened. It hasn't been fully revealed. It hasn't been fully received now, for us, 
in 2023 with full access to the revelation of God in Genesis to Revelation, we could spend all morning going back into the Old Testament and pulling out passages that clearly point to Jesus Christ being the long-awaited suffering servant, the Messiah who would come and die and be raised to life and usher in a new kingdom where all things are made to flourish again. We would have no problem with that. But we'd have to admit that it's far easier for us to do it because we've been given a certain lens in the New Testament through which we can look at the Old Testament passage and see passages that would have been fuzzy or unclear to be fully clear and vibrant. Paul sees this plan now as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he wants the world to see so that even the rulers and authorities would come to see the full picture of God's plan for salvation and be in awe by it. And you could think of it like the Old Testament is grainy VHS footage. If you've got old video footage from the 80s, go back and look how bad it actually was. Like I have video footage of me in the 2000s that when I look at it, I'm like, is that me? I, I know that it's me because why would my parents videotape anyone else other than me? But that doesn't look like me. If Old Testament is grainy VHS footage. Paul wants to remaster it. He wants to recolorize it. He wants to provide an ultra HD 8K picture of the glory of God in salvation. In some ways, it's not a new message. He doesn't have a, a, a new revelation. What he has is a clear picture of God's original plan. In some ways, just like the 1950s weren't actually lived in pixelated black and white, it's just that they didn't have the technology to capture the reality of the thing they were trying to describe. Paul is, is helping us to be able to see a reality that these Old Testament prophecies and illusions were always pointing to. They were vibrant, they were clear, but they just didn't have the tools to convey it. So Paul wants to provide a set of glasses. He's like an optometrist. He wants to take these glasses and provide them to the Jews so that the Jews can see with greater clarity the reality of the things that they've believed from beginning. And he wants to take those same pair of glasses and he wants to give them to the Gentiles so that they can see for the very first time a beautiful picture of reality, of God's plan and purposes for them and for the whole world. What is this mystery that Paul is now ready to proclaim? He says it in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's pointing out two things or two facets that I want to highlight. The first, that the gospel brings different people together. The gospel brings different people together. There's a key word that's translated well in the translations that you have, but it's, it's missing in the actual words. You might read something like this. The mystery is that Gentiles are together heirs. They are together members of the same body. They are together partakers of the promise. One facet of the gospel that was revealed in the Old Testament, but not clearly received by those who believed it, is that the promises of God were for all people, it was good news of great joy for all people, not just Jews. So when he says it's for the Gentiles also, he intends for us to say that the promises of God promised in the Old Testament are for all people. 
So when Jews and Gentiles come together into one humanity, this union of their now newly formed togetherness displays the wisdom of God's plan in salvation. The second thing, this gospel is good news, not good advice. Again, in verse 6, the blessings of being an heir in God's family don't come to us through works of the law. In other words, Gentiles don't need to become Jewish in order to receive an inheritance as a son or daughter of God. They don't need to return to a sacrificial system or a holiness code that would separate them from all the other parts of the world. What they need to do is embrace the fact that this good news comes to us by grace. No one's being born into God's family because they're a part of the, the right bloodline or family line. No one's coming into God's family because they have earned enough righteousness or performed enough sacrifices. The one thing that brings us into this family is faith by grace through Christ. And so this good news is, is big enough news that Paul can't keep quiet about it. There is a kind of good news that we might be able to share with one another that is good news, but it's not worth dying for. Like, did you know this week, like, we caught him. That prisoner who escaped, Cavalcante, we caught him. Well done, law enforcement. For those in the Phoenixville area, I hope that you are living new lives now that you are safe from this escaped convict. Frankly, it had no bearing on my life. It has no implications for anyone outside the world. It's good news, and we should celebrate that as good news, but it's not really great news. Paul saw the gospel of Jesus Christ to be so great. He saw its gravity, its significance, its weightiness, that he wanted to bring to light this cosmic mystery so that Jews, Gentiles, the whole world, and even to the heavenly realms would be able to stop and stare in awe at God's plan. And so I want to talk about what are some implications that that might mean for us. First, in order for the gospel to continue to advance around the world, we need to believe that the glory of the church is worth suffering for. In order for the gospel to advance, we need to hold true, presume the things that Paul and these martyrs have in the past, that the glory of the church is worth suffering for. Because the church, like Paul, will suffer, pay a price in order to bring the gospel to all people on earth. Sending missionaries will be a financial burden. And going as missionaries into dark and dangerous places will risk the loss of lives and freedom. Keystone as a church is preparing to pay this price collectively. We started a missionary fund called Once that's set aside for future missionaries that Lord willing will be sent out from Keystone to go to the ends of the earth to unreached people groups, to people who have never heard the gospel even once. We're, we're starting to save up for that day. And Keystone is already taking vision trips around the globe 
to be able to give people a window into the worlds of unreached people groups who have never heard the gospel even once. Lord willing, Keystone is going to have some hard conversations in the decades ahead because a young adult is going to eventually come to her parents and she's going to tell them that she feels called to be a missionary to an unreached people group in a hostile country. A young man is going to take his wife and his young children around the globe to a people he's never met before. And the conversation that will happen between those who go and those who stay, I'm wondering what will that conversation be like? Will friends and family say things like, honey, like we're going to miss you. You can't go. Or honey, think about your career or your education or your family. You can't go. And they say, honey, like there are people who don't know Jesus in our own family and in our own community. Just stay here. Honey, think about your own family. You guys will be safer and better off if you stay here. Or might they be able to say if they believe that the glory of the church is worth suffering for, will they say with tears in their eyes that everything that we have is a gift of grace? And I don't want to waste my life on things that have no eternal value. And there's a world out there who has never heard of the immense, immeasurable riches that are available to them in Christ. Someone needs to go. Someone needs to send. And the glory of the church is worth suffering for. We'll pay that price. God, I hope that's true for us. The second thing that I want to draw our attention to meditate on is to consider that in order for the church to display the manifold wisdom of God, we need to believe that the glory of the church is worth suffering for. And what I mean by that is living out all of the togetherness that the church ought to be, the kind of togetherness that displays a kind of brilliance in God's plan for his glory to save that kind of togetherness is going to be painful and involve suffering. Being together heirs, together members, together stones, the kind of togetherness that causes the angels to do a double take, that kind of community of togetherness is going to be painful. Why do I think that? Well, I'll answer it by asking the questions for you to think about. Why is it that Sunday mornings are the most segregated hour in America? Why is it that we all have the tendency to talk to the same five people on Sunday mornings, if we talk to anyone at all? Why is it that it appears that the church is just as divided or selfish or cliquish or bigoted as any other group? I think I have the answer for it. It's because loving sinners isn't easy or comfortable, or to put it positively, because it's far easier to love people who are just like us. So unless we're willing to suffer for this together community, it'd be far easier just to avoid irritating people or disappointing people. It'd be easier to keep our distance. It'd be easier to pull out of a small group that's emotionally draining. It'd be easier to find people who are just like us 
who act like us or have money like us or have sensibilities like us because I like me and anyone who looks like me, I can get along with. But let's think back just a few years. How'd that all work out for us in 2020? How many of us found that our pool of friends shrank once the masks were taken off? Because it turned out that some of the people that you were friends with, that you once knew and loved, had opinions and strong convictions that you didn't necessarily share with them. And so for some of us, that meant that we stopped being friends, and for other of us, it meant worse that we started being enemies. The funny thing is, is that the, the people that we were once friends with before 2020 they were the same people. They held the same convictions, and either we didn't know about them or we didn't care enough about them that it bothered us. But now that we know, we are more polarized and atomized than ever before. It turns out that if we only want to surround ourselves with people who are just like us, we might be able to find a new group of people for a while, but it's just a matter of time until they too disappoint us until we find some incongruity or inconsistency that we don't like about them. And before long, we'll eventually find ourselves alone, looking in the mirror with the only people who are just like us, saying, why can't everyone just be like me? And I want to say that I get that temptation. Like, I feel why that would feel like a better solution to distance ourselves from others in the church, the church being full of sinners, all in progress of sanctification. But I don't believe that the solution is really to insulate ourselves from bothersome believers. Farmers know something about flocks of animals, and sheep in particular, is that you get a bunch of sheep together, it's going to stink. And pastors know sheep bite. Sinners, surprise, are going to sin against you and make life hard for you. Sinners are going to eventually disappoint and grate against you. Even Christians who ought to be shoulder to shoulder with you during seasons of suffering may end up finding themselves to be the source of suffering in your life. People in the church are hard to love. And I wrote that line hoping that Bethany's amen to that wouldn't be too enthusiastic. Because I am hard to love. You are hard to love. We, as Keystone, can be hard to love. But when we are able to grasp the grace that God has shown to us and be able to extend that grace and forgiveness and patience to others, we'll find that the church sparkles with a kind of technicolor brilliance that will cause even the angels to stop and stare and say, look at God's manifold wisdom on display. We as a church will glorify God every time we suffer to love someone. Every time we suffer to love someone, God is glorified. It shows that God is more glorious than our comfort. Paul ends up saying that it's worth it. It's worth loving people like Brandon. 
who may irritate you and disappoint you. Paul wants us to grasp that the unity of loving people like Brandon or fill in the name of the person that you find difficult to love is a beautiful thing because it means that we are a united church and we can relish the beauty of this new community, this new kingdom. We can taste the sweetness of new family members and we will one day be able to do that and do it for all eternity but there is a way that we can begin to taste the sweetness of our brothers and sisters in the church right now. One day you'll no longer regard me or one another according to my flesh or their flesh, but you'll be able to see the beauty of a new creation. And that day is coming, God, sooner rather than later. Until then, it's going to be hard and it's going to require a price. And I want to say for those who might be feeling like they're suffering in isolation, that no one knows the, the length that you're going to suffer for the sake of testifying to the grace of God that even if no one in this church knows the price you're paying, God knows that, and the angels see it, and you're giving angels reason to be astounded by God's grace in your life. Paul suffered, we can read about it in 2 Corinthians, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, gen danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many uh, exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And I say, if, if God's grace was sufficient for Paul, it should be sufficient for us to love one another in order to leave our homes and prioritize Sunday mornings to gather together with his church, to endure the awkwardness of, of talking to a couple that you've never met before and find out that they've been coming for two years and you didn't know about it. In order to endure the awkwardness of talking with people who aren't gifted at communicating well, in order to give sacrificially and invest in the work of the church, in order to serve generously and help the ministries that are part of the church, or even to leave our church family here and our country here to go to a people who have never heard the gospel once. In order for us to ad advance the gospel and display the manifold wisdom of God, we need to believe that the church is worth suffering for, but even if we do raise funds, send missionaries, and come together in this new community, we still don't have the power to do what we desire to see happen. The eyes of people's hearts opened, and so we labor in prayer because God does the work. And this is why Paul ended his first section in chapter one by praying, and it's why he's gonna launch from this passage into praying. He believes that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain because this is the eternal purpose of God. A humanity with all of our unique image-bearing diversity gathered in unity, dwelling with God in harmony 
and reigning and enjoying God for all eternity. This purpose was achieved through Jesus, God himself entering into the world as part of humanity and achieving a perfect righteousness that we could never obtain and paying a debt for sinful people that we couldn't pay so that he could defeat our enemies of Satan, sin, and death and then by faith unite us to himself to enjoy all of his righteousness and all of his riches and slowly but surely be transformed more and more as a people into the image of Christ. The church with all of its spots and wrinkles and blemishes is being purified and one day will shine with the splendor of the jewel of God's wisdom. I say, God, let it be. Build your church for your glory and the good of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, from before the foundation of the world, you had a plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And you formed the world as a home to dwell with your people, that we'd experience the joy of your presence and enjoy all that you've made to flourish. And Lord, we confess openly that we squandered that. We foolishly rebelled and chose to seek our joy outside of your presence. And now we experience the world that has unraveled all of the best things fall apart. All joys fade, all pleasures shrivel, and our hearts ache for things to be made right. And confess, Lord, we are powerless to reverse this curse on our own. And so we say, Lord, you are merciful. You are full of grace. You are powerful to save. Your plan and your purposes to redeem and restore the world will stand. The mystery of how you would accomplish this plan has been revealed to us, and we have it. We have this word written in letters and sentences we can understand. But Lord, we need your spirit to grasp it, to not just know it, but to believe it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister to our broken or discouraged hearts. I pray that you would correct our misguided thoughts. I pray that you would soften our jaded attitudes. I pray that you would strengthen our weakened resolve so that we as a church would stand united together as an exceedingly great army for your glory and for the good of your church. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.